Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Listening to a Roddenberry podcast. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, supplemental number 64, the one with Armin Shimmerman. Welcome into a supplemental edition of Mission Log that really needs no introduction. Norman and I were thrilled to talk to Armin Shimmerman about everything from, well, of course, Quark to Shakespeare and many stops in between. Armin couldn't have been nicer or had better insights. Enjoy the show. All right, I, I have to ask you, as Norman brought it up, I have to ask you, uh, I, on your Twitter bio, first thing is Luddite. <laughs> Please, how do you define that for yourself? Because here we are having this remote conversation over the internet, we can see each other. This is the miracle of the 21st century. It is that. Uh, uh, for me, a Luddite is a person who knows nothing about technology, and uh, I think I pretty much define that. When you go to the dictionary and look up Luddite, my picture is there. <laughs> And and yet here we are making this happen uh, remotely. So well done, thank for, you for a luddite. Yeah, and you know just enough technology to be dangerous, right? And then I everything hope so. else. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, look, I, I sort of uh, I, I want to bookend this whole conversation with you today about uh, Shakespeare because we will certainly get around to the book that you've written. But I, I want to start back with your origins as an actor. And uh, that was one of the most interesting things following your career and uh, learning about your background, working as an actor in Shakespeare, teaching Shakespeare and being a scholar for productions. I, I noticed that you were doing some monologue workshops for Theatricum Botanicum here. Um, can you talk to us? I mean, maybe people in our audience are not as tuned into Shakespeare's work or the, the impact and importance for actors but especially today. And I'm just curious what that conveyance is like for you now, talking to young up-and-coming actors or actors polishing their skills about the relevance and importance of what Shakespeare did. Well, trying to wrap this all together, let me approach that question through the, my, uh, for the first answer, which is the relevance of Shakespeare, for an actor anyway is the understanding and appreciation for language. And I, and I think it's, it's interesting that if you look at all the major players in the Star Trek franchise, almost all of them have a classical background. And I believe that's partly because the powers that be recognized early on that each of the actors auditioning for them had the ability to use strange language, technobabble, and, and make it sound natural. And, and if you can make uh, Verily sound natural, you can make uh, Phaser sound natural. So um, there's that. Uh, 
Yeah. But but for actors who aren't in the Star Trek franchise, uh, I would recommend to them, or to anyone for that matter, whether you're an actor or not, the great thing about Shakespeare and classical literature is appreciation of our English language, which I believe um, is not fading away, but is not being emphasized as much as it used to be. Well, and there was something kind of uh, uh, very formal about Star Trek, especially through the end of the Berman era with uh, the the language being very specific. I mean, you mentioned there's Technobabble, of course, um, and you might be able to correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I know that there was a lot, and particularly on Voyager, where uh, no lines could overlap uh, because the, the, obviously this is a production reality, wanting to cut down on unnecessary edits. Uh, but there is a formality to that Star Trek language that's very different now, but um, a few years back, not so much. Uh, I would say that almost every show I was on, whether it was Star Trek or not, uh, did not want the actors overlapping. It was We were responsible for knowing our cues, and we had to wait for that cue to happen. Um, the great thing about that is if you're forced to listen for your cues, you're forced to listen. You're forced to listen to what the other actors are saying and really take that in and be aware that um, that your turn is coming up. But I don't, if you can name any, I, I don't know of any TV shows that allow overlapping. If, if that's true, then sound technology has progressed since I was working on a set. Yeah, I, I think nowadays, new productions, there, there's a lot more of that. Um, and obviously, theatre for feature films is a very different thing. Yeah. The, the pacing is quite different. But, um, but yeah, newer shows, the, the pacing a little bit different um, and a bit more of that overlap than certainly than you would get uh, on a you know show 20 years ago. I think, uh, and forgive me, I'm not a scholar of modern shows, but I, I would imagine that it's, it, that pace is part of the energy. They don't want to lose their audience, and so you keep the pace up so that no one has the opportunity to change the channel. Right, yeah. yeah for sure. Well, being a scholar of, of Shakespeare and being classically trained in Shakespeare, we know that, that television production, television production that you've been exposed to, they have very long days, 12 to 14 to 16-hour days. Do you believe that having that type of classically and theatrically trained background and, of course, being able to memorize the the volume, the voluminous passages of Shakespeare allows you to to stay and and be more present in character because of that kind of training. Um, I don't know if my training actually had anything to do with my ability to keep it going for 16 hours, because that was my normal day, 16 hours. That wasn't always on the set. That included the makeup time as well. Mm. But, but I do think my classical background, or my theater background, not so much classical background, but my theater background, was such that in the theater, um, we are hit over the head with the idea that we must be ready at any moment to go on and perform. Um, that's probably true in any medium, but in the theater especially, because everybody on stage in front of that live audience is expecting you to do your job exactly as they expect you to do it, there should be no surprises. And, and you have to be ready at a moment's notice to to do what you're expected to do, and sometimes to do what you're not expected to do in the sense that if something goes wrong on stage in live theater, um, uh, you need to improvise very quickly and figure out a way out. So um, that was part of it. In addition to that, and my experience is a little different, very different, I would think, than most actors. Because of 
my being encased in rubber uh, for all of my time as Quark. And because many of my fellow actors were also encased in rubber, whether they were playing Ferengi or whether they were playing Cardassians or other aliens, we knew that the, the, the rubber head was a, gave you a feeling somewhat of like having a head cold. Mm-hmm. And so that your thoughts began to get very muddy by the end of that 14th, 15th, 16th hour. So what I did that I've never heard anyone else do, and, and I compliment and, and thank all the actors who agreed to this. During my years on Star Trek, um, on the weekends, I would ask the actors that I had scenes with to come to my house and rehearse the scenes and uh, like a theater, and, and most of them did. I would say 95% of them did. And because we had rehearsed it enough times, when the hour got late on set, we were working on fumes, and those fumes were promulgated by the fact that we had rehearsed it. We were remembering what we had done on the weekend to help us get through 2 o'clock in the morning. That that's a real rarity and a luxury to have on TV to be able to rehearse. It was an enormous luxury, and I'm very grateful to the people who said yes to that. Did that ever uh, become a, a problem or a question? Or obviously, it was an advantage. Uh, but you're rehearsing a scene. One way you show up on set, a director has a different idea or vision for a scene. <laughs> so I leave that to Max. Uh, Max. <laughs> When we would rehearse a sufficient amount of times, Max would then say, uh, so now how can the director f*** us up? Um, <laughs> and, um, and so we would try to figure out ways that they could do that. And, and most of the time, we were facile enough, plastic enough, so that we could take the direction and fit it into what we had already decided on. The, the mark of a good actor is to be able to 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 moderate your choices as quickly as possible in television. You may not have to do that in film, certainly not in the theater. But but on television, you need to be able to change radically and quickly. And uh, because we were we had rehearsed it and it set a baseline, we could take whatever the directors gave us and hopefully uh, change it so that it fit their particular guidelines. Because after all, the director was taking his or her instructions from the producers. You know, Armament, the um, the uh, interesting thing about, you know, having a, a stage actor and having that stage actor try to translate their skills onto the smaller screen, especially in the amount of prosthetics that you had to wear. Stage actors usually tend to uh, exaggerate their responses, their their emotional beats, but because you were behind all of this application, I always felt that, and I said this on the show too, John, I always felt mm. that you as Quark or, say, Mark as Skull Dukat or even Renee as Odo, you always tend to have very good strength behind your eye acting, if you will. Do you feel like that was something that you progressed with over time because you were able to sell a little bit more emotional depth to your character through eye movements, eye acting, mouth movements, and things of that nature? Well, um, that's thank you, Norman. That's a nice compliment, and, and I will take it and take it for the other two as well. Um, for me, I can only say this: um, because I had rehearsed it, it made the thought processes deeper, um, so that 
I knew sort of what more of my intentions, more of what I wanted. And if you're thinking, really thinking, it doesn't matter where you're wearing prosthetics or not, the audience can see that in your eyes. So that again, that that home rehearsal helped that happen. As for overacting, I don't I don't think that I'm much less of an overactor than I ever was, but I do think the makeup muted it down. <laughs> that that uh, the makeup made uh, it uh, less obnoxious, and uh, because I'm an alien, you can get away with a little bit larger than life reactions because it's they're not necessarily human. Let, so let's talk about cork a little bit because, uh, as Norman mentioned, you know we're we're in the middle of our rewatch review discussion coverage and and approaching the end of uh, season six of DS Nine. But Quark has a life bigger than DS9. I mean, Quark is one of a very few characters to appear on multiple series uh, as a guest spot here and there. Quark appears in commercials for Star Trek products. And I have to tell you, as I was doing research uh, to talk to you today, I went back and rewatched the live with Regis and Kathy Lee appearance <laughs> and uh, so i'll come back to that in just a second but i i just want your take on quark growing i, I the the way i look at it quark just became bigger than this one character on a tv series and did, did you feel that at the time is that just something that kind of happened organically well i will give you a, a prologue to my answer, um, which is when I was doing not Quark, but a different Ferengi, uh, Letek, on the uh, Next Generation, I uh, was working with uh, someone I'd known for a long time, Brent Spiner. Mm -hmm. And it, it was a brand new show. TNG was a brand new show. And I said to my friend Brent, I said, what do you want to do with this character of Data? What, what do you want to do with it? And he said to me, I want to take it from the character with the least amount of potential and make it into the character of the most amount of potential, which of course he succeeded brilliantly at. Yeah. But those words rang in my head when I got the phone call from uh, my agent saying I was cast. And so that's what I was trying to do. I do not think in hindsight that because I wanted that really more than anything, I'm not sure I always did what the writer producers wanted me to do. I think Sometimes I was a little too, for want of a better term, noble for them. Sometimes I was a little less comic than what they wanted because I was sort of after this goal of making him, as you just put it, bigger than the show. I, I wanted that character to have the most amount of potential. Now, whether he did or not is for history to decide. But that was my attempt. And so, yes, I was aware of that. Um, and I do remember one early episode, uh, Move Along Home, I believe is the name of the episode. And um, when I really thought, this is, this is my chance to take this character and move him forward a little. And the seven years was about moving this character ahead step by step. Now, I didn't do it alone. My writers uh, were enormously there for me as well. But as I said, I think at times we were at loggerheads with each other. And um, 
you know, there was little they could do uh, if I shot it one way different than what they wanted, except perhaps go back and reshoot the scene, which we did do on occasion. All right, let, let's get into that <laughs> because I, I, it, that is always the question. What is the relationship? And it's, in, it's different for everybody. As individual, uh, as many actors as there are, that relationship between you and your goals for the character and the writers and their goals for the character or the, the episode or the series as a whole. And Quark had a lot of changes over those years. And I'm curious how much, you know, you, you talked about hitting loggerheads with those writers. I'm curious what those were and how much you pushed. Well, I'll give you one example. And this is the most extreme of the examples. Okay. So, as I said, uh, I often rehearsed in my house during the weekend. There was one particular scene that involved Andy Robinson, who played Garrick, and myself. Uh, it's, it's been, uh, history now calls it the root beer scene. <laughs> and, um, and we sat there at my kitchen table uh, doing the lines, talking about it. And we came to find out that, that there was more to it than just what was on the page. Uh, that there was a depth to it besides the obvious comedy to it as well. And we began to explore that depth and that that Machiavellian give and take between a serious Machiavell, Garrick, and a comic Machiavell, Quark. And what was the relationship between these two competing characters? And and we did that and we did that. And, and this refers back to your question earlier. So on a Monday... We brought that scene in and the director looked at it the way we had uh, thought we would do it. And he told us point blank, I can't shoot that scene. That's not the way the writers want it. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's just not funny. It's not funny. And uh, we said, we don't think it's funny. We think it's meaningful. And uh, he was caught between a rock and a hard place between a series regular and the instructions he had from his, his producer employers. And um, he did this absolutely the right thing. He said, I need to bring in the writer or producers so that they can make a decision. Um, uh, Robert Hewitt Wolf and Ira Bear came down to the set. Uh, Iris said, what's the problem? We explained it to him. He turned to me and Andy and said, can you do it the way we want it? And we said, sure. And we did it the way that they wanted. And he said, now, show me what it is that you want to do. And then, of course, that was what we were interested in. And we showed him exactly what we thought was there. Um, and Ira, God bless him, uh, made a 30-second executive decision, talking to Robert Hugh Wolf, and turned to the director and said, shoot it the way Andy and Armin want it. Now, I will say, during the course of time, I think we reshot that scene twice uh, and I think because the writers saw what we were doing and made some subtle changes in the language so that it would play more towards what we wanted. But um, there were often times I know in hindsight, even though I thought I was doing exactly what the writers wanted, that when I look back, I think, no, that's probably not what they wanted. I mean, we all have we all have so much more awareness in hindsight. We know. I mean, after all, we would get a script. What it, it, we would get it maybe maybe if we were lucky, forty eight hours before we started shooting. So we have to make some pretty quick decisions, and we look at the page and we and we think, oh yes, 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 and we make those decisions. 
but the writers have been writing on the, on the script for much longer than the two days, you know, than two days. And, and so they have much deeper responses. Unfortunately, on our show, we didn't have a lot of, um, during the day, communication between the writers and, and the actors. We got that through the director. The director had had his, his tone meeting. He was told what to do, what he'd seen, and he brought that to us. Um, and, but sometimes directors are just a little bit frightened of series regulars. Um, because obviously a series regular can go to their bosses and say, you know, I didn't much care for that director, the way he treated me on set. Would you not hire them again? Now, I'm happy to say I never did that. And and I would venture to say most of our actors didn't do that, but I can't speak for all of them. Yeah. I mean, it is uh, known that, you know, characters or actors that inhabit their characters, especially throughout the course of so many years, you know, they begin to have an attachment towards where their character arc is going. Uh, you said that uh, you made that conscious choice very early on at the very beginning of Quark's arc. Uh, do you remember a time in your career before Deep Space Nine that you took on that type of responsibility for a character and really pushed against the powers that be to make sure your character stayed consistent and, and, and uh, with integrity? I don't think I ever did before Quark. I don't think I had the power. Hmm. I don't think I was ever in a position to do that. Um, I had recurring characters before I played Quark, but but I was always a little fearful that a recurring character can die off, and uh, and I needed the paycheck and I needed the the uh, the uh, visibility. So, but I was pretty secure with Deep Space Nine. Um, I knew that uh, the character was was popular, and I knew that um, um, I was sort of on the right track. So uh, I. So I had a little bit more balls uh, on Star Trek. I would never have done that on Buffy. Uh, I would never have done that on any other show that I worked on. It, 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 I didn't. There are people who can do that. Uh, I'm just not one of them. Fair enough. All right. Back to Regis. <laughs> I, I watch it. And uh, honestly, it's a fun segment. And for our listeners who haven't watched it, check it out. Uh, there's an edit on YouTube where... Quark comes out first, and then you fast forward, you know, 25 minutes later, the edit puts these two back to back, and then Armin comes out without the makeup, and uh, and speaking very highly of your makeup artist, which is uh, great that, uh, that we get Eric to see. That he deserves an enormous amount of thanks. My yes. character is, is popular because of what I do, because the writers did, but also what Karen did. Karen made Quark. The makeup was superb. You could come in as close as possible with the camera and not see a, a, a weld anywhere. Yeah, yeah, the, it's seamless. It, it really is. It's perfect. And as I'm watching that segment, the thing that I kept wondering is, um, and this goes back to the question about Quark appearing in places other than Deep Space Nine and having this life beyond. Um, I, I wondered if there was a hesitation bringing Quark out out of context because morning TV show Regis and Kathy Lee, they're not tuned into Star Trek. They're, they're barely getting a grasp of the character. And it seems like the pretense of the character first, the actor second just goes out the window. (laughs) They're, they're they're trying to figure this out. Well, I I know that they were absolutely flummoxed by Quark. Uh, (laughs) Uh, because the makeup is so good that um, there was this creature sitting in front of them that I know that they had never seen before. I'm sure a picture must have passed 
in front of them right before they did the segment. But uh, but I'm sure they had never seen this before. Um, and I I was a little concerned about the very thing you're talking about, John. And and so if you go back and look at it again, there is a huge difference between the way I act, answer the questions. I answer the questions in makeup as the character of Quark as best I can without my writers to support me. And when I came back as Armin, I am not being as glib, as charming, as uh, uh, um, off the cuff as uh, Quark was. It's because I didn't, I didn't know how, I can't, I can't just show up in makeup. Uh, they want the character. That's why they asked for the makeup. That's why we did th uh, two and a half hours of makeup for that segment. Uh, it is, and again, if you look at that segment, and this is why I've been smiling while you've been doing the setup for this, um, they said to Karen, okay, he's got 25 minutes to get out of makeup. And um, both of our eyes popped, or, or our, our two sets of eyes popped. <laughs> Plus, getting out of makeup without really ripping my skin off takes an hour. Yeah. It takes an hour. To, to be careful, to be safe, uh, to be efficient, to get it all off, it takes at least an hour. They told us, no, you have 25 minutes. So Karen uh, took a deep breath and said to me, I'm going to throw a bucket of uh, uh, the stuff that takes the makeup off at you. Um, and and she did. And and uh, I was inundated with this stuff. It, it is it's a type of alcohol, but it's, it's much more, it's a different sort of animal altogether. Mm. And when you see me come back at, out as Armin, if you look close enough, you can see that I am not drunk, but the vapors are still around me, and I am a little glassy-eyed uh, because I am in, still inhaling all of that, uh, those alcohols and, uh, that took the makeup off. And, and I'm, a, I'm a little, I'm more than a little, I'm very spacey in that second segment because I can barely see them and I can barely think straight. Well, I mean, do you look at something like that as just like, okay, here's here's the opportunity. I, I need to do what I have to do for the the viability of the show. I need to go do the promotional stuff and just, you know, grin and bear it. A, a it's a challenge anyway to do the makeup and take this off, even if I am glassy-eyed when I come out. Um, but is that basically what it comes down to is like, yeah, okay. It was I'm, my job to do publicity. They didn't yeah. ask me very often or any of us, I don't think, to do publicity very much. And here was an opportunity to go to New York, stay in a very fancy hotel, have uh, a weekend in New York, um, to be on on uh, daytime TV, uh, you know, on a highly regarded early morning program. Um, yeah, it was it was absolutely part of my job, and I was happy to do it. Well, it's a fun clip. I'll uh, I'll put a link up for our listeners who haven't seen it. You know, Armin, I know that you have spent extensive time with all the fans talking about you know history with Quark and Quark's arc. But one of the things I've always wanted to ask you, or ask actually any of the cast that were involved with the episode Far Beyond the Stars. Mm -hmm. The first question that I wanted to ask you is, where did you find the, the inspiration for your character of Herb? How did that come to be? Because it's the one time that you weren't in makeup, but I think it is actually one of your best performances in Deep Space Nine. And the other question uh, after this would be, what were your exact thoughts 
the very moment that Avery fell to the floor at the very end of the scene because it seemed like all of you were naturally just speechless. We were. Uh, we had the um, rare opportunity to see it twice. He was not only doing that scene, he was also directing that scene. So um, the DP who was monitoring his performance said, I think we had a little camera uh, glitch and you're going to have to do it again. But that performance was as splendid as splendid could be. We watched it in awe, all of us. All of us were watching him do this. And you could hear a pin drop from, we were, it's not that we didn't expect good work from Avery. It's that this was really something special. This was an extraordinary moment to be an actor and to see another actor at the top of his craft. It, it, it was, it still lives vividly in my mind. It, it is one of the most memorable moments from the seven years was watching him do that scene twice. And he did it brilliantly the first time. And one thinks that in the second time, it's not going to be as good because the uh, uh, all the enzymes aren't kicking in. Um, but he was absolutely just as good the second time around as, as well. Now, where did I get the performance from? Well, for one, the man who created the idea for the episode is, is a friend of mine named Mark Zickri. And Mark had told me about the idea of the episode uh, right after he sold it to the writers. He didn't get the opportunity to write the episode, but he sold the idea. So I had a lot of heads up about, um, about this. Now, uh, I'm old and I've just forgotten the name, but my character of Herb was based on a very real science fiction writer um, who was very short of stature. And I, and I just forgotten his name, but very famous, very famous writer who had worked on the original show as well. Anyway, so I did some research on him and, and that is uh, where Herb came from. One of the things that I was determined, again, my desire as opposed to the writer's desires, and I don't know what the writers wanted on that show. They got, they got what I consider the best episode we ever did, even though a lot of times we were not in makeup uh, and we weren't necessarily the characters we were playing, but that's my point. At one point, Avery asked me to do something and I said, that's what Quark would do, Avery. I'm not playing Quark. I'm playing Herb. And I don't think Herb will do that. Now, if Avery had been, had been insistent, I would have done what Avery asked me to do. But uh, he agreed. And, and it was one of the points I made uh, with Avery, which was, don't think of my character as Quark. And in fact, I don't think you should look at any of the characters in the 50s as necessarily absolute reflections <clears throat> of their 23rd century characters. We weren't, nor, uh, nor do I think we were supposed to be. It, it, was, it was a brilliant episode, brilliantly directed, brilliantly written, brilliantly conceived, brilliantly acted, and, and a great, great episode about racism in this country. And remember, we're talking about this decades ahead of where we are now. Um, and, and, and one of the reasons I have to give credit where credit is due that the episode is so good is that this particular topic is, is so dear to Avery's heart that he instilled us with a passion 
to do this as as well as we could. By the way, I just looked it up, and uh, the the odds on guess is Harlan Ellison. It is Harlan. It is. It is yeah, yeah. Uh, not tall, definitely outspoken. Right. So yeah, Absolutely. Uh, he was based in Harlan Ellison, and so I did research on air Harlan Ellison, and uh, and you, Harlan Herb both start with an H. Yeah. I'm I'm curious uh, a little bit more about uh, Quark's bigger journey over the series. And and as we've been telling you, you know, we haven't finished our sort of final analysis of DS9 and haven't gotten to the the end of the series yet. But even in the um, six seasons that we've covered so far, um, Quark has changed quite a bit. Quark has gone from purely ruthless capitalist, uh, almost, you know, murderous, uh, uh, potentially murderous character at the beginning uh, to somebody who has found a sense of principle. And, um, you know, you're talking about that relationship with uh, the actor and the writers. And I'm, I'm curious if early on, the description and understanding of the character, everybody's understanding of the character uh, was this kind of uh, well uh, ruthless is the word that comes to to mind but the the pure capitalist who would sell or kill his own brother if it came to it was it intended to stay that way or did you all just sort of find this ability to grow the character and, and be somebody with principle right i think each of the characters on our show and probably on every show that one watches or works on what the actors bring to dailies to their work changes the concept of the characters for the writer producers. So I, I think we gradually found our way with my character. Uh, I, I will say to you unabashedly that I think in my effort to find the potential for this character, I was ahead of the pack as far as the others were concerned, not necessarily in the chain of their characters, but I, I remember many times talking to the other character, other actors, and they would offhandedly make a comment about my character. And I would go, I would think, I never said it to their faces. I would think that's the way my character used to be. Hmm. Have you been watching the episodes re recently? Cause they don't necessarily see my work because if they have the day off, they take the day off. Um, so I, so I, I was changing as they were changing. Um, and I think I was a little, I don't think they were always aware of the changes that was happening to my character. To this day, I think most of them see my character, um, and I may be wrong, and I hopefully I am wrong. They still see me as that first, second season quark and not as the sixth and seventh season quark. Now, I may say I probably am suffering from the same uh, limited vision about their characters as well. Although I was very good about seeing all the episodes, making sure that, uh, uh, you know, I kept abreast of the show, but. Um, oh, know. did did you really? So uh, for, for the purpose of informing yourself as Quark or I, because a, a lot of actors and right. I definitely understand don't watch their own work uh, right. for, for good reasons. Those are confident, reasons, those are confident actors. I am not a confident actor. <laughs> So, um, and the reason I say that is I know what was going through my mind when I shot the scenes of a particular episode. So the question then becomes, especially with the makeup, especially with being somewhat of a, to, 
you know, my background in theater. Mm -hmm. Am I accomplishing what I meant to do? Is it working? Am I too large? Am I too small? Did it work? Did it not work? Uh, um, did did, uh, did I do I look like I'm listening? Which was always a problem with those years. Um, uh, is any of that working? What's working? What did work that I can use again? After all, this is what I just said about dailies. Um, writers see dailies and they go, "Oh, the actor's giving me an idea about what to do for the next episode, the next episode." So. I'm watching, not dailies, because I have no access to dailies. Mm -hmm. I'm watching the program itself going, ah, that works. That doesn't work so much. That uh, More of that, less of that. So I watched it as a feedback loop yeah. so that I could get better. Because, um, um, uh, as I said, I'm not a confident actor. And so I'm always assuming that I can do better. So one of the things that we do on Mission Log, and, and this is why I was very curious about Quark's growth over time and change over time, is that we're watching these shows analyzing what, you know, the three M's, we call it, morals, meanings, messages. What, what is the, the heart and the message of the show uh, as an individual episode or as part of a season or as part of a series and ultimately as part of Star Trek, uh, the, this much bigger thing under this giant, tent that uh, Gene Roddenberry created. So Quark seems to be this character who, over the course of these six years, has found a sense of principle and found a sense of self that is very different from that season one, season two Quark. Um, but I want to talk about the show itself, because you're, you're an actor who is in that rare minority that has watched and studied all of the shows. Where does this put DS9? What, 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 what about DS9's growth as a show that seems at some turns to be very much in line with these idealistic, aspirational ideas of the future and tackling social issues? We just talked about Far Beyond the Stars versus a show that has a very dark streak and uh, pulls back layers on you know, some very unsavory aspects of this potential future. Right. Thank you for that question. Um, my answer is going to be a little bit derogatory of some of the other shows, so my apologies for those other shows. We have no loyalties here, don't worry. <laughs> um, people always say that Deep Space Nine was dark, and it was. It was lit dark, and the sets are, are darkly painted. So, yes. But um, I think it is the most human of, of the shows because I don't think the main characters are as idealistic paragons uh, that Roddenberry created for the first show and that were emulated in some of the other shows where th those guys can do no wrong, that occasionally they might do something wrong, but you know they wink and they say, oh, well, I won't do that again. Um, but for us, we all of our human trappings, all of our foibles were very much there. And they were part and parcel of us. Sometimes we admitted to them. Sometimes we recognized them. But sometimes they were just there. And we continued to do those less than paragon sort of things. Um, and I think that's one of the things that keeps our show, Deep Space Nine, so relevant. Because we are not a, a cookie cutter, uh, hero oriented show. Mm. Uh, and, and modern shows are about that, about heroes who, who who are heroes, but they also have the, their dark sides. Um, I don't think 
I don't think many of the Berman shows, certainly not the Roddenberry show, um, uh, had the ability to look at the dark side of their characters. Or if they did, they didn't focus on it. And I think we did. And I attribute that not only to Rick Berman and, and to Michael Piller, but certainly to Ira Bear and the crew of uh, writers under in his, uh, in his particular uh, uh, writer's room that, that wanted to show these essentially uh, uh, good people with human less than good traits. Uh, so it wasn't just me. I mean, we have a show, Deep Space Nine, uh, is usually based, based around a captain. And in our show, it was too. But certainly, one of the stronger presidents on our show was a terrorist. Uh, Major Kira was a terrorist. And, and she, we got to understand her point of view, but she hated, it was racism, she hated Cardassians. Uh, um, and she made no bones about that. Um, and she was a terrorist. She blew things up. Um, all of the characters had some foibles to them. Um, Odo was absolutely a, 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 a law keeper. But, um, but at the same time, he was enormously um, racist in the sense that he believed that, even though he didn't know his people, that he was somehow more superior than everybody else. He certainly was more superior with Quark anyway. Um, and, and so I love that about our show. I love that we're looking, even though our show had more aliens on it than any Star Trek show ever had, because it's very expensive to do that, we were the most human of Star Trek shows. You know, I think that's actually a really good point, Armin. I think one of the things I've said uh, over the course of, of the episodes I've covered for Deep Space Nine is that the secondary cast, which uh, has uh, more aliens in it than any other supporting cast in Star Trek, and then you being in the main cast, uh, you and Renee being like the major prosthetic-covered aliens, I think that in some way that allowed you and the secondary cast a little bit more freedom in exploring those types of... Uh, characteristics of humanity without being humans. And I think that found its way into a lot of people's consciousness because it allowed more access to, to questioning your own emotions. Did you feel that was the case? I absolutely did. And whenever they gave me a speech that described humanity in a less than perfect light, um, I always called that the Spock speech. Oh, they gave me a Spock speech. Because that was the role of Spock. That was the role of Data. Uh, and that role was uh, shared with Renee and I and Nana and anybody else who wasn't human uh, to make our points of view, for the writers to make their points of view about humanity. Um, and, and I also, as far as our secondary characters, because because the focus of our show wasn't primarily on the captain. Um, the rest of us got an opportunity to fill in more because that particular space wasn't um, a supernova in, in the sense that the, that character took over the show. Um, and, and not only for the series regulars, 
who are below number one on the call sheet, but also our very recurring characters, who, by the way, are some of the finest actors I've ever worked with. Um, we were very lucky to have astoundingly good actors who the writers began to think, you know what, we can base a show on our recurring characters. We don't necessarily have to have the series regulars uh, carry the show. And that's a tribute to all the people that worked on our show. Well, you know, transitioning from speaking of working on the show, there's a, a huge uh, legacy and a tradition of some of the actors that have graduated from being behind the camera uh, or in front of the camera to being behind the camera, becoming directors. You know, we had Jonathan Frakes do it. Um, you know, we had Roxanne do it in, in Voyager. We had LeVar Burton do it. Did you at any point in time feel like you... I mean, Renee did it as well. But so did, so did you... they... And Avery, of course. So did, yes. so did Andy Robbins. Yeah. So you had a lot of your own colleagues. So did, so did Sadig. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so uh, talking about your colleagues, uh, heeding that call, did you ever feel that you felt that pull yourself? Um, no. Uh, I think I had a brief visitation to that for maybe a day or two. Um, but no, I never really wanted to take on that responsibility. What I wanted to do and tried to do was sell episodes to the writers. Uh, I am primarily, my passion is writing, not directing. And, and, I, and I will also say another caveat uh, as far as why I didn't want to direct. Um, one, it's a lot of work. Uh, two, there would have have to be days when I would be, if I were directing, where I would be in Video Village or behind the camera and giving direction to the other actors in my quark head. And as I briefly touched on before, I'm not so sure the other actors would have taken direction that easily from someone looking the way I did. Uh, so there's that. I, I will also say, and any one of the uh, actor directors that I just mentioned or that you mentioned, always found it difficult to direct their peers. Um, the peers took, not always, but occasionally, took some umbrage at one of their co-workers telling them what to do with their character. Um, there was a little bit of tiny bit of friction, not always, but I would say mm, a third of the time there was some friction that way. And I personally didn't want to get involved in that. Interesting. So look, uh, a couple other things to cover here, but before we leave Star Trek behind and uh, get to those other things in your life, I'm curious what your relationship with Star Trek is now. Um I, obviously, we see you at conventions and you're in interviews, and it, so it, it's still in your life. But you know, Quark, uh, you inhabiting Quark, hasn't appeared new on screen in a little while. And I'm just curious, what what role does Star Trek play in your life now? How do you look at that? Well, uh, it it, uh, it plays a secondary and tertiary role in my life. First of all, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Um, I do conventions, I do other things because of Quark, and it's 20 years plus, uh, maybe 25 years since, uh, since I got into that makeup. So I'm grateful for that. Um, secondarily, tertiarily, um, because of all the episodes I did, I'm of a certain age, I get a pension, 
and I have a very nice pension. Thank you very much, Star Trek, uh, for allowing me to, to accrue all those pension credits. Um, I have insurance uh, through those credits. Thank you very much, Star Trek, for that. Um, I often get stopped in the street uh, and people say, are you Quark? And, and people will be very nice. Thank you very much, Star Trek. But uh, that said, it is the great fear of my life that when I pass away and they put up a tombstone for me, that the, the headstone will say Quark and it won't say Armin Shimmerman. Um, because Quark is only one of the, at this point, hundreds of characters that I have played. So uh, I'm grateful for everything. I, I wouldn't be a published writer, I'm quite sure, if it hadn't been for Quark as well. So, so Quark and Star Trek owe a great deal to me. And in fact, in the first several months of when we started shooting Deep Space Nine, um, because the other actors on the show knew that I had been a Star Trek fan from early on and was very familiar with Roddenberry's uh, version, uh, the first uh, Star Trek, um, they often came to me. I remember some actor asking me, because they were flummoxed, Armin, you know this stuff. What's a Klingon? <laughs> so, um, but Star Trek has been in my life since I was, what, 17 or 18? Uh, I was always a big fan. One of the reasons I became Quark is when I heard that they were looking for a Ferengi for Deep Space Nine, um, I, did, I moved heaven and earth to get an audition and uh, was very fortunate to win the lottery. I mean, Star Trek has been, as you said, has been uh, a part of your life, you know, um, in front of the scenes and behind the scenes. And I'd like to, to turn our attention a little bit more towards this project that is coming up for you now uh, with your wife, uh, Kitty Swink, and with Jonathan Frakes. This is Trek Against Pancreatic Cancer. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that? Sure. That uh, project has, has, has not necessarily come and gone, but we were raising money for uh, pancreatic cancer for a, a, a foundation called PanCan which is a support system for people who have pancreatic cancer, people for the families around pancreatic cancer. Uh, um, my wife, Kitty Swink, is a survivor of 17 years of pancreatic cancer. When she was diagnosed, I didn't know at the time, but, this, but the uh, mortality rate was only 4% of the people diagnosed with, with pancreatic cancer would survive. So Kitty's a miracle. Um, Jonathan's brother uh, was not a miracle. Uh, he was diagnosed, and I believe within five months, he passed away. So Jonathan, Kitty, and I have a direct connection to this disease. Uh, the, the, the mortality factor now is, is jumped from four to 10. Uh, so you have a 10% chance of survival if you're diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Um, and it's becoming uh, the second most lethal cancer around. So the three of us, uh, when asked, we're more than happy to, to give our support, to, to lend our names, to do what we could to raise money for a particular event that PenCan was sponsoring called Purple Stride. That happened on May 1st because of the COVID. In years past, uh, there was a, a march, a walk that one did on Purple Stride. You walked for, for PenCan for pancreatic cancer. Uh, because of COVID, we couldn't do that this year. So we had a um, online march and we raised money. And I'm very proud to say that thanks to not our efforts, although certainly we had something to do with it, but thanks to the generosity of all the people who are part of the, St the Star Trek fandom and what we call the family, 
uh, we raised $64,000 uh, towards helping PANCAN eliminate pancreatic cancer. Uh, it is a horrible disease. And unfortunately, when you're diagnosed with it, um, uh, it's usually too late. Well, congratulations on the, yeah. the uh, success of that. And um, that is absolutely wonderful that you can bring that to the community for um, we, not only those diagnosed, but those who are surviving as well. Exactly. And, and what we want is for doctors to become better educated to look for symptoms because, because they haven't been doing that. It, 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 they see the symptoms, but as I said, by that time, it is too late. So to look for things really prematurely so you can get to this disease before it kills you. Um, and as I said, we were raising money for Purple Stride, but because of what we learned about PANCAN uh, and, and, and what it does for this particular disease, um, we have agreed to sign on for other events as well. Uh, and where can people find more information? Should they follow you on Twitter to get more information? Or uh, is, are they there... follow us on Twitter? I believe all of us are, are tweeting about that. Uh, I, right. I'm only on Twitter. My wife is on, on Facebook. I believe Jonathan is as well. But certainly, if you went to www.pancan.org, um, you would find out everything you need to know about PANCAN and, and what it does to uh, fight this disease. All right. Uh, well, I, I'm the king of transitions here. I want to wrap this all up talking about books. Um, so I, I had not realized how many books you have written. And uh, yes, we're going to get to uh, Illyria here in a moment. But but even before we get to that, I did not realize that you wrote The 34th Rule. I didn't. Uh, you, you didn't? Was, I didn't write it. You didn't? No, I, I and oh. you know that's a mistake. It's not your mistake. It's it, it, my oh. name is on my name is on the book. Your name it's, is indeed on it. I, but but the truth is, uh, I didn't re write that. David did. Um, David and I uh, worked through the scheme of things how how the plot was going to go. It, it was I mentioned earlier that I, I I was more writing oriented, and David and I and uh, Eric tried to sell the plot of this book as an episode. To Deep Space Nine. They did not pick it up. Um, when we found that out, we were despondent. But David said, why don't we write it as a novel? And uh, Eric didn't want to do it as a novel. He liked it better as a TV show. So he dropped out. So David and I sat down and sussed out what the plot line would be. Um, and, and that was the end of my participation. So I uh, I story conceived by yes, um, but the actual writer is David. Well, uh, two things. First of all, I'm really glad that you brought back the Beta Z gift box. I mean that that's critical. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's very critical. It is the gateway to everything we're talking about today. See, I, there you go for for our our listeners who don't remember those heady days of early TNG, the episode Haven. That was Armin's first appearance on Star Trek as a Beta Z gift box, as a prop, um, a talking prop. A, a, as a prop. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll we'll leave it to your imagination whether they are sentient, whether they have free will. I mean, there are all these questions that come up when you live your life as a silver gift box. Um, yeah. The other thing, interesting that it's called the 34th rule, uh, friends, listeners, don't look up rule 34, uh, if you're on the internet, cause, uh, yeah, that's a, a whole different thing, but let's talk about 
what you have out now, which you did write in full, and that is Illyria oh, Betrayal. Before we do, before oh, yes. we okay. enough time, very quickly. I, yes, of course we so, do. Uh, one of the reasons I was okay with writing the, that novel was that I had been approached to write a science fiction book and uh, the writers wanted something that was sort of connected to Quark. So besides the 34th rule, um, I've also written a trilogy, and I have written these books. Uh, I wrote a trilogy that is about a character named John D, who also appears in the Illyria books. But that, that John D is really Quark uh, more than John D. Uh, and that, those books I wrote uh, while doing Deep Space Nine. Oh, okay, okay, all right. But uh, so, and, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mention it. They're called yeah. the Merchant Prince novels. Merchant okay. Prince. Okay, there we go. There we go. All right. So then that brings us up to Illyria, Betrayal of Angels, and and I, I've been putting my head around what is a fascinating combination here: the setting from Twelfth Night, but playing out a uh, a, a drama, political intrigue, detective story, etc., but using some historical characters. And you mentioned John D., who I had to look up, and absolutely fascinating life. If you can let, oh, hey, look at that! You actually have a bust of John D. Fantastic. There's a whole catalog of books about John D. Oh, cool. Cool. All right. So enlighten our audience a bit about the real John D vis-a-vis the John D in your book. Right. So uh, I will do that. But but when I was writing those Merchant Prince books and I knew that they were mostly about Quark and not about John D, I promised this guy, I am going to one day write some books about you and not about about Quark. And so that was the inspiration. Now, who is John D? John D. lived in Queen Elizabeth's time. Um, we have we have no understanding, real understanding, whether John D. indeed met William Shakespeare. But over the course of all my research, I have found one or two or three or four possible connections. So, um, who was John D.? John D. was a master mathematician. He was a... Um, a philosopher, a natural philosopher. He was a uh, a advisor to the queen. He tried to help with navigation. He 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 was an astrologer, an astronomer. Uh, he was a Renaissance man. Uh, people from all over Europe used to come to Mortlake, which is a suburb of London, and uh, and have conversations with him about how to scientifically do things. He has become infamous in his history for something that um, he was very much concerned about and, and, and thought was a great investigation. We sort of poo-poo it nowadays, although if you really think about it, we really shouldn't. And, and this is what he was interested in, among the myriad of things that he did. He believed, as almost everybody in that period did, and perhaps everyone today does, maybe, that angels existed. And if they did, how do you communicate with them? And he, there was a thing called screeing, which was a way for someone who was a sensitive to, after preparing themselves, uh, and a a lot of preparation, Mm -hmm. uh, that they could somehow become sensitive to communications from above. And so D himself couldn't do that. 
but he hired these screers to, to communicate with angels. And he, there's a book behind me, which I'm not going to reach and get, but he <laughs> created a dictionary of the angelic language. And he believed he spoke through his screers to, uh, to the angels, and they informed him of the history and, uh, and of other things. Now, most of the Elizabethan period was very, wrong word, but superstitious. Mm -hmm. They believed in things outside of normality. So uh, history, however, has sort of poo-pooed that idea, and, and he was relegated to the dust heap up until, I would say, about 75 years ago, when people rediscovered how many scientific things he had done as well. So um, my novel, novels, there are three of them, uh, only one out, but two to come. My novels are about, as you said, John, so well, is about... Um, him investigating one of the primary issues of his times. There was a huge cataclysmic debate, fight, uh, revolution about religion. Uh, in in uh, my book, my first, uh, my novel, uh, Betrayal of Angels, takes place in 1583. And I believe, forgive me if I got the date wrong, but I believe it's 1543 or somewhere thereabouts that Luther came out with his uh, tacking his tenants on the church wall. And um, so it's only 40 years. And most of Europe is Catholic. England has become Protestant. The Northern European countries are Protestant. Germany is Protestant. Spain is Catholic. France is Catholic. And, and people are killing themselves over whether Protestantism is right or whether Catholicism is right rather like what was happening in Iraq between the Shia and the Sunni, and it's still happening. What's happening in Israel just last week. Mm -hmm. They're both Semites. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so he's investigating the loyalty of a particular count who uh, owes his allegiance to Queen Elizabeth. She wants to know whether or not he's Catholic or whether he's Protestant, but more importantly, whether he's allowing Catholic priests to, to come into England to, um, to do mass. Understand that after 1570 or thereabouts in England, mass, Catholic mass is forbidden. Anglican mass is okay, but Catholic mass is forbidden. So priests were not allowed to do mass. And so my book is about investigating whether this count um, is loyal to the queen or whether he's loyal to the Vatican. Um, and and this count turns out to be Count Orsino, who is a character from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. Twelfth Night. I, I love the combination. I love reading about the amount of detail into the Elizabethan period that you put into this book. Where can our listeners find it? The book? Oh, my yeah. God. You can find, well, certainly the first place I would point you to is to my publisher and his website, uh, which is www.jumpmasterpress, that's one word, uh, .com. And uh, I believe it's cheaper there, um, but you can also go to Amazon, of course, and uh, you can find it there. Um, if those two places don't interest you, uh, as I have done it with my local bookstore, I have asked them to ship it in and they're selling it on their, uh, their shelves, at least here in, in the Valley in Los Angeles. So uh, you can do that, but certainly um, Amazon, or Jumpmaster Press. I recommend uh, Jumpmaster Press 
One, because they get more money that way, and, and frankly, so do I that way. But, but, but uh, either way is fine. And if you're in Europe, uh, I think it's probably cheaper to go with Amazon because of the cost of, of shipping the book uh, abroad. Uh, and if our listeners wanted to have it signed, will we see you at any uh, upcoming conventions? Or get through the conventions, and, and okay. I, I'm I'm signed for at least one convention in Chicago. I have others as well, oh, right. but that's a, that's one. But uh, should you want a signed copy, which I'm happy to do, Jumpmaster Press has a, a deal. I think I think it's like for five bucks or maybe less. Could be I don't remember. Um, that um, we arrange it so that you get it signed by me. Um, and ship to you. So you don't have to go to convention. You don't have to pay the whatever it is, $35, $50 to get in the door. Um, just uh, uh, go to jumpmasterpress.com and uh, ask to have my book signed, and you can click a button there. Um, and and I, actually, I think you can also go to my website, uh, arminshimmerman.com, and I believe that will put you to Jumpmaster Press. I'm sure it does. And, uh, and we can get the book signed that way as well. Fantastic. Well, Armin, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure talking to you. John, thank you, Norman. Okay, thank you so Our much, Armin. We're really quite, quite good, and uh, it's lovely to share. This is a Roddenberry Podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.rottenberry.com.